This is Ideas at the House, a podcast featuring some of the best live talks from the Sydney Opera House. I'm your host, Edwina Throsby. Intersectionality is the buzzword of contemporary feminism. But in focusing on issues of race, class and sexuality, disability often gets forgotten. In a panel at All About Women, three radical speakers discussed how being disabled raises a whole lot of unique issues that directly affect their feminism. NDIS campaigner Samantha Connor, writer and performer Kath Duncan, and artist, activist and writer Catherine Anier were joined by session chair Van Batten for a rowdy discussion on why disability can't be left off the table when thinking about a truly inclusive feminism. So, intersectionality. I found myself on radio yesterday explaining to a radio host just what the word meant. But when we discuss feminism, who gets to participate, who gets a platform, who gets challenged, who gets advanced, we can't have a discussion about the fight for equality without talking about the, the prejudices, the disadvantages and the exclusions within our own movement. It's the most important discussion we can have in terms of looking at the project for a fairer, equal, accommodating world to acknowledge what goes on within our own communities and our own activism about who gets to participate and who doesn't. So today we're going to have a bit of a rip-roarer of a conversation with a panel that I am totally overwhelmed to be introducing because they're so superb. Kath Duncan, Catherine Anier and Samantha Connor. These women are alternatively activists, community organisers, writers, performers and a whole lot of trouble. Um, <laughs> and before we really get into the conversation, a, a couple of things have to be explained. There might be some bad language and I hope everybody's comfortable with that because it's probably going to happen. Uh, the other thing that I want everybody to be very aware of is that when we're talking about the exclusion um, of people with disabilities, we are going to be talking about violence. We're probably going to be talking about sexual violence. Um, we may be encountering conversations that are really awkward and painful and difficult for people to encounter, and that's fine. If you're not comfortable with the conversation and you need to leave the room... Everybody here respects that. This is a space without judgment. And it's absolutely important that people prioritise their own self and sense of safety in the hour that we've got ahead of us. So that's totally okay. All right? Don't stay anywhere you feel uncomfortable. And obviously, if you need any support, we've got lots of stuff floating around. They're absolutely here to help you and to, um, to give you anything you need. The other thing I'm going to say is that we're probably going to throw over to questions in about 40 minutes so we can get as much out of our fantastic panel as possible. Um, the microphones are signed with a one downstairs and a two upstairs. And when I call for questions, I'll get you all to line up. If you can't line up, just flag a member of staff and they'll sort you out. So right, everybody rip-roaring to go. Yeah? Great. Now, Kath, Catherine, yes. Samantha... Um, Let's talk about intersectionality and let's get some definitions down. Because if, as a movement, we're at the point of having to explain that word to the mainstream media, uh, obviously it's a word that we've got to unpick and give people a context to feel empowered using. So, Catherine, you won the best definition of intersectionality competition um, when we were discussing this panel <laughs> it's online. True. It is, it is genuinely true. So, I thought you might launch into it. Oh, I'll launch into it. Um, originally, the term was coined to. Um, describe the intersections between um, feminism and um, women of colour 
Um, and then as we've moved on, it's been broadened to include um, other areas of disadvantage um, and marginalisation. So, um, and it's, we think about the way those factors intersect in the one person or the one community. So you might be a woman, uh, you might be a woman of colour, you might also be a lesbian, so they're intersections, or you might be a woman and disabled um, and living in poverty and they're intersections. So it's looking at the way that intersects in your life but also the interrelatedness of that to the rest of the community. Does that make sense to people? So, Samantha, when we're talking about intersectionality and uh, the community of people who live with disabilities, like, what, is the, what is the language of intersectionality around that? How does language police or exclude people with disabilities? I think we have um, some problems in recognising that our issues are the same but different. So there's sort of an added layer of complexity. So when we're talking about disability, we're quite often othered. So I think it's um, not so much about language, but in terms of the othering of disabled women. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a tricky thing because of those layers of complexity. They're not recognised as being women's issues when all women are women. Well, the reason I brought up language was because when we were talking before the panel, uh, we talked about what is the language we're comfortable in using in this session today? Crip is a... I mean, I feel crip is a bit of an insider term. You know how we have terms for each other? And they don't... I love freak, but if someone just on the street goes, oh, you're freak, it's really different from my friend going, Cass, come along, you freak, you know what I mean? So I think that's kind of an insider kind of term. And I've got a few other sort of little bits sort of playing in on that as well. So I'm quite good with that. At the same time, though, if you're filling out a government grant, I think pretty much around Australia, they expect you to put that person with a disability. You know, and I've saying to these grantees, kind of just like loosen it up, but no. So, yeah. I, so I'll take that is what I'm saying. If anyone wants to use that, that'll, that'll do. But my preference is disabled woman. Catherine. Um, uh... All kinds of things. <laughs> um, I predominantly identify as um, disabled and autistic. Um, and, yeah, there's sort of, you know, it's uh, what we call identity-first language so that, so that I think the, the, the move to person-first language was part of a movement to see the person, not the not disability. disability. Yeah. But when you actually locate disability in society, then uh, it's not the person that's disabled, they're disabled by their barriers. And there has to be some way by which you can claim identity, and language is one of those. So um, using autistic with a capital A, like the capital D, deaf, is a way of... Um, identifying yourself both personally and politically. Speaking of the, the political paradigm for talking about disability politics, Samantha used the term the social model of disability, um, which is a term that I first heard, like, I think much later than I should have, like, ah. as somebody who was very active in um, feminist activism at university and, and really that sort of blindness and... Um, 
an, ex- an exclusion of a more complex like reality for women participating in activism is, is something that I find really confronting. And I heard Jack's Jackie Brown, the activist from Melbourne, use that for the first time. And I found it quite a like, revolutionary, paradigm-shifting way of understanding how ability and accommodation work. So, Samantha, I wondered if you could take everybody through what is the social model of disability? I guess it's just that in terms of um, looking at things that disable us and looking at... Catherine can probably explain this out better than me, but in terms of um, things that impact on us and marginalise us rather than... Um, looking at us being the problem, you know, other things being the problem. Um, Attitudinal barriers are one of the things that people with physical disabilities sort of experience um, quite a lot. So there's problems that arise from that around um, stereotyping where people regard us as pitiful objects of welfare and charity or inspirational and treat us accordingly. So it means that people don't necessarily have relationships or jobs. So it's about that stuff where we have barriers that impact on us and it's not just about ramps and stairs. Can I give a bit of history on that? So when we're talking about models, we're talking about ways of seeing or interpreting. We're not talking about, you know, actually building a building or whatever. So in the, say, pre-1950s, 60s, we viewed uh, disability through what we call the medical model, which is this is your individual tragedy, you're sad and pathetic, and maybe we can do something to fix you. It was pretty much the way that I grew up. I was born in 1961. And then over pretty much in the UK, uh, disabled people got together and started to say to each other, why are we stuck in institutions when if the world was different, we wouldn't be rammed away in these little, you know, sort of ghettos, you might say. And so they came up with this idea of the social model being that we're disabled by the barriers in society, we have impairments, so we're not ignoring the fact that we're different and, you know, those differences, you know, carry costs and so forth, but the social model is about seeing that we're all social creatures and if we sort of tweak the social environment, we have a lot more access wherever we may go. So they ended up, you know, sort of making this idea of we're disabled by society, as Sam said. Just a bit of history. And it sort of came about the same time as feminism was rising, black power was rising, Aboriginal land rights were rising. And so, you know, there was sort of uprising going on in social groups and disability rode in there as well on the sort of the movement for sort of freedom and self-determination that other uh, marginalised groups were going through. So, Catherine, we spoke yesterday about... The, the history of very public activism around disability in the United States, where a, a, a lot of people who were the originators of the independent living movement actually came out of the feminist movement, the women's movement, the civil rights movement on campuses. And I had only learned recently that the longest occupation of a government building in American history took place in the 1970s. It was a group of disabilities activists mm. who seized a building and demanded equal rights under American law. But when we were talking yesterday, you were saying that there, there was a division between the movements and certainly some of the limitations we find in second-wave feminism are limitations we found in, the, in, in all of previous activists or activists from previous generations not keeping up with the way a discourse of inclusion is going. I think that it relates to the fact that a lot of the movements have been either in the UK or in the US, they're very um, Western-centric movements um, and predominated by white 
educated middle class people. So regardless of the fact that people um, were disabled, they had accessed things like education and, and were in a position to um, enact their um, rights in terms of sitting in that building for a very long time and they lived in there basically and had people bring them food and to wash them and all of that sort of stuff. Um, but uh, and So I think a lot of those movements came about with a certain degree of privilege um, and so even within our own movements we fail to deal with intersectionality and we also end up with a very either, you know, UK-centric or uh, Americentric or even white Australian-centric sense of, um, of rights in terms of how we view um, disability rights and, and those sort of things, you know, has this sort of parallel track with feminism. So lots of these rights movements have failed to deal with intersectionality, have failed to deal with the idea that you could be, um, you know, the site of multiple disadvantages. So you might be disabled, but you also might be an Aboriginal woman um, and you might have experienced poverty or be part of a stolen generation. And then, you know, how how do they all... Uh, all those factors in enact on your life and, you know, do you even know what feminism is? Have you even accessed um, education that allows you to uh, understand what women's rights and feminism is? And I know that a lot of the people that I have worked with personally have very little understanding of feminism historically what feminism has done for women but also how they are situated within the feminist movement so um and like we're really good at talking to each other disabled people like we go off and have our own conferences and things like that uh we fly around the world and we all get together and we talk about our issues and that's great um some of our biggest challenge for the last, say, 20 years and for the 21st century is infiltrating other movements. And that's very difficult when those barriers are there. So, Kath, you told me that you fell in love with feminism. I did! It, is it a complicated, complicated love affair? It's, it's become so. It wasn't in the beginning. I went to... I grew up in Sydney. I now live in Melbourne. I was at Sydney University in 79 and I found this great book, which was the Spare Rib Reader, sort of this edited edition of the British Spare Rib Mag, which actually did better than some in terms of uh, people of colour and stuff. But anyway, um, I just... It just blew my mind. Um, I did. I fell madly in love with this. I guess the, the political analysis of why I sort of just never felt as important as any of the guys I was studying with, which I thought was my own problem. I mean, you can see parallels with disability, that sense of, oh, no, it's all just about me. And then reading feminism, I started to say, no, 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 this is like a bigger, you know, political connected experience than I ever thought. I did. I fell madly in love. And... Um, 
and kept being in love for, I think, the next 10 or 20 years or something. Cut a long story short, by the time it was, I think, the late 90s, I discovered disability studies. Oh, my goodness. Does, has anyone here looked at disability studies? I mean, it's uh, yes, it's kind of like the, you, my next love affair, you know. And it's not that I fell out of love with feminism. I just found something that spoke even more intensely to my experience and... and, and just theorised about disability in a, in a way where we're no longer the cultural, you know, the bits that fall on the floor and get swept off or whatever. But, we, you know, like we're on the, the table there, you know, like with sort of front and centre of the experience. And I fell madly in love with disability studies and I'm still in love. So in, in a way, feminism's like my ex... And it's and and I still I'm very fond of that particular ex, but I I did I and I just fell madly in love with disability studies, and you can see sort of the differences between the two. I actually think that disability studies is more open to intersectionality than feminism. That's probably a bold statement, but that's my finding. It just sort of seems to open up, and maybe it's because for I think some disabled people. Uh, moving into this area and speaking out of disabilities studies is one of the maybe, you know, first moments they have of really being able to claim this theory. Like, I went through uni. I've got three degrees or something and a fourth one happening or whatever. But I faked most of that theory stuff. It was like, yeah, whatever. You know, I'll just pretend I understand this bloody Baudrillard nonsense and all Foucault, whatever. But when I found disability studies, it really spoke to me and I realised how much nothing else had or it spoke into bits but this seemed to kind of take the whole in. So that's my love affair. Foucault's still in there. Yeah. <laughs> Just got to say and yeah. there is feminist critical disability studies. Yes. Where we marry them all. Yes. And it, I don't know if you've any heard of the scholar called Rosemary Garland Thompson. Yes. If you want to She's speak. been to Australia. She's amazing. She was, she was in Melbourne. Feminist Critical Disability Studies, Rosemary Garland Thompson, if you want to write that down. And Carol uh, Thomas in the and, UK. Yeah, bunches of people marrying those um, paradigms and mm. developing, developing their own epistemology in terms of looking at... Theory is beauty, I tell you. Mm. Anyway. Oh, I concur. Sorry, we just probably lost some people there. <laughs> Especially at Foucault, but anyway. <laughs> uh, and some of us have had messy breakups with feminism as well in terms of it being the ex, you know, so... You know, that constant battle around, um, you know, issues like minors' disability violence is the area that I work in. So quite often that trying to get at the table that Kat's talking about is a really, really difficult thing because our issues are sometimes different or framed differently. So um, not quite the ex that I would take out a restraining order against, but kind of that, yeah, I don't want to see them in the street sometimes. Wouldn't lend them $1,000 if they turned up to your house in the middle of the night. That hasn't happened to me. So... <laughs> <laughs> um, Samantha, in, in particular, uh, looking around uh, incidences of violence, like this has become a real flashpoint, I know, for you as an activist in particular, and I was wondering if you could talk everybody through that tension with uh, violence ag against the disabled and the way that works in terms of a discourse of violence against women. It's quite difficult because um, the area that I work in is also around deep disadvantage, so it's around um, especially women with intellectual disability, so this is a really big issue for us where um, we have violence that's perpetrated against women with in intellectual disability. So I think the stats um, which are reported are that 90% of women with intellectual disability are sexually abused in their lifetime. 
um, the average age of an intellectually disabled person when they die is from preventable illnesses and from violence is 54 years of age. And we don't talk about those things, especially in mainstream feminism. So I guess there's tensions around that. You know, we've had some fairly um, public fights with... Can I just throw destroyed the joint under the bus? I'm yes, so sorry. Do. Are you here, It's Jenna? a good example. <laughs> it's you know, so so we were holding an event which we hold yearly called the White Flower Memorial, where we remember um, dead disabled women and also men and boys, because it's sometimes less gendered, you know. So that's one of the really big issues for us. And we'd asked that organisation or movement to sort of promote our issue and the person who was talking to us said, can you just put that in a disability group somewhere because it's not one of our issues? And, you know, we're told that um, feminists are not our foot soldiers for, you know, for your cause. So those sort of issues. So I think that um, those differences around it not always being intimate partner violence, um, all violence comes from power imbalances and that doesn't always look like gendered violence, and I think they're some of the difficulties that we have with actually being at the table. Um, Catherine, you and I were talking about stigma as well and about social stigma, particularly around uh, the things that middle-class people will acknowledge as reality and um, or choose not to, and the things that communities of the working class or poor people have to just live with as reality. And in terms of an intersectional analysis, one of the things as feminists we keep finding ourselves discussing is that you know, class privilege is class privilege, no matter what uh, sphere of activism or influence we find ourselves in. And I just wondered if you could talk about you know, what gets occluded by people's class experience when we approach like systems of participation and inclusion. Well, I think... You know, I teach in um, disability studies arena and I think it's really important for my students that I acknowledge my own privilege as a white, middle-class, educated and articulate woman and also talk to them about their privilege but also the power imbalance that exists even in the room when I'm teaching and they're the student um, and that's always an entree into looking at how power operates in our lives and the fact that that by virtue of our privilege we're sitting here and there are other people sitting at home right now who've got no idea that we're here and that we're talking about what we're talking about. And um, I think it's, you know, if you're an activist, it's kind of incumbent upon you to reach out to people that are left behind by extreme marginalisation. Um, and one, you know, understand their perspective, but also if a person is interested, bring them along on the journey in terms of opening a door, asking questions, you know, um, working with people who have um, extreme disadvantage and not in a way that I'm turning up as the great white saviour. It's in a way that is respectful of a person's desire to move forward and to lead their own empowerment. I think, you know, you can't 
empower people. You know, I can't say I'm going to empower you today. That's not what. That's not how empowerment works. But it's often how it was used, especially in the sort of 90s. We had a lot of uh, funding and tied to empowerment initiatives. Empowerment is about creating a space in which powerless people can take their own power and dictate their own means and go on their own. Uh, travels in terms of uh, discovering things like feminism. But if if we don't create those spaces um, in our own movements, then infiltrating is a bitch, you know? Can I talk about a certain conference? Do we have... You can talk about if you like. I went to a conference um, a while ago in another... Commonwealth country, and um, they had made a spe- special theme of disability. Um, and when I arrived at the conference, um, I was co-presenting with a woman from Chile, and she's a wheelchair user. When I arrived there, we were supposed to be sharing. Our accommodation was inaccessible, so wow. I had to swap accommodation after 35 hours on the plane. Luckily, there was someone in the bowels of the building that gave me a great Turkish coffee. But um, they're, they're, that, that sort of set the scene for the whole little trip. And it was in a university that was a vertical building. It had lifts, and wheelchair users had lift priority because there were stairs, and people, able-bodied people could use the stairs. The number of people that stood around and complained about priority use of the lift was phenomenal um, and, and um, why, can't, you know, why can't we get on the lift first, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. There was an opening do for uh, like a soiree with uh, champers and oars duvers and whatever <laughs> and, uh, and uh, we weren't there. We were at a community centre having some, some other do all the wheelchair users and crips and whatever. Uh, and just the space was really inaccessible. The finale was that the after party was in a nightclub upstairs. So even though they'd made special theme, feminist conference, special theme disability, um, lots and lots and lots of hard work was done by disabled women to get there... People come from third world countries and got harassed on the way, arrived days late because people were convinced they were trying to leave the country forever. And then to, to come to a Commonwealth country and face all those barriers was kind of devastating and really tiring for a lot of people. So in terms of the cultural project for transformation... Like, when we're dealing with assumptions, they're so ground that you have a feminist conference that puts everybody in a wheelchair in the room of a community centre with a cheesy pineapple when everybody else is having the fancy stuff somewhere else. Like, I wanted to, to bring you into this conversation, Kath, because as a performer, you have had, like, this incredible impact on the Melbourne community. Oh. You have. Kath oh. is, quite, is quite famous oh. in Melbourne. Um, Please, Please say make more. her talk about stump fucking. Huh? Please make her talk about stump. I'm sure she'll get there without my help, Samantha. (laughs) Um, 
But in terms of a cultural project and what you've done with quippings mm-hmm. and the various performances that you do, which I wanted to talk about because talking about the sort of white saviour complex, you do a character where you satirise the kind of very well-intentioned middle-class person who comes in and destroys everybody's life. Yes. And in terms of how how you've used performance (laughs) as a site of activism as well. Yeah. And the role of that in challenging exclusion. It's it's a hard it's a it's a big job. But what happened uh, uh, with me was that when I moved to Melbourne, I ended up living in this queer bookshop down there that's famous as it's called Hairs and Hyenas, and they've been going for twenty plus years. And it's this queer bookshop is also a performance space and a cafe and a bar. <laughs> There's nothing they can't do, and a great toilet. But um, what, what happened was it must have been when I first got there, which is like 2010, um, there's a very well-known uh, wheelchair user guy there called Greg. And Greg was upset because he can't, he was hanging out for it, and he couldn't get into sex on-premises places. You know, we all know these places exist. You know those, oh, well, maybe, the, uh, anyway, sort of, there's lots of places in Melbourne that are kind of like for guys to get down with other guys and blah, and he couldn't get in. And so we formed this sort of like little lobbying group, which was like about sexual access. But I realised I find lobbying and activism dull. And so at some point in there... Um, there was this, there's this great guy called Crusader Hillis, Greg and me. So Crusader said, well, why don't we make performance about this? And I'm like, yeah, you know, any idea to get out of writing letters to whoever and ringing people up was a great idea. So we um, had our first show at the very beginning of 2011. We called it Quippings because it's like a queer and, and cripple and equipping people and all this. And it just, it was huge right from the beginning um, just the place was packed out. Um, so we started then, we sort of pulled together a kind of group, like a production group, and then we started making shows. And so we've been going, we just had our last show back at, in January of this year. So we've been going for seven years or whatever that is, eight years or something, seven, whatever. And over the time, what we've done is worked with people who are both, you know, emerging and people who are more skilled but perhaps have never had a sort of a platform to be, you know, queer, disabled, sort of like all your identities at once and it's all okay. And, and queer-friendly people as well because what we realised, it was remarkable, once we got to be known a bit, we had disabled people... want to be performers or performers calling us from all over Australia and in fact around the world saying can we can I be with you guys and it'd be like well we've got this kind of you know queer thing we're not queer you know and I was like well you know queer friendly so we sort of expanded it a bit to include these other people who just had no other platform to kind of experiment with their material um over time what we realised was really interesting, which is that a lot of disabled people actually, it appears, don't really like talking about sex. I love it. But a lot of people don't really like it. There's a sort of a discomfort around it. And actually, if I can be so bold... The st- be bold, Kath, be bold. The straighter people, as in more hetero people, were much more reserved about talking about it than the queerer people. I don't really get that either, but that's what we found. And the more straight people we had, the less sexy it was. No offence to anyone, but that's just... <laughs> what happened and um but over time we start like last year was our best year in terms of funding we got a creative uh victoria grant it's like a state arts grant and we had these three properly funded shows worked with 13 different people in various combinations across the year and it was just amazing to to just be recognized i guess we got to work in great venues too in melbourne for the first time we could afford great venues 
And that's where kind of where we're up at the moment. We've got no shows on the slate, but the we've trained or at least, you know, helped skill up, oh, I don't know, 100 different people over the seven years. And so those people have gone out. It's great to see them go out and work with other companies, audition for things, get jobs, make their own podcasts and stuff like that. So although it's arts, and I know arts is kind of like the poorer cousin of, you know, straight activism and stuff. It's kind of my area and it's what I love. And I just feel really proud of what we've achieved in that time. And the fact that other people then, they have started applying for grants, start studying, start working with other people. It's really great to see. Samantha, yeah. Oh. oh, oh, please. Samantha, in the green room, you were frantically folding zines and um, they may just be in her hands right now. And uh, I've heard a rumour that you guys would be lurk- lurking around the foyer handing them out. In terms of looking like engagements and sites of activism that bring joy, like talk about the zine project, talk about the publication work that you're doing. So I um, belong to a collective of women um, internationally now who are called the Bolshe Divas, who are a feminist disability group. And we also had that intersect of activism and art. We probably kind of identify as hardcore, awful women who upset <laughs> people, especially politicians. And so we had... And Andrew Gentle. Absolutely. Oh, I'm Andrew Jensen. Yeah, thank you for the mentions, Andrew. Um, so, you know, we lobby around all sorts of intersectional issues around things like um, euthanasia is a really big issue for disabled people, whether you're pro or against, uh, pro, you know, or, you know, so there's kind of um, those issues which aren't considered to be disability issues that are intersectional issues. And we quite often make um, zines, which are tiny ones, mini zines, those sort of things. Um, not so much talking about personal stories, but talking about disability rights and I guess um, those sort of creative art projects also give disabled women the chance to not necessarily be present. You know, half of us live in poverty. Um, Sometimes our impairments can stop us getting places, you know, to meet and to be activists. So I think those sort of creative projects have been things and also the power of social media, you know, which is where we've moved in terms of... um, feminism now. So I think we're able to be a lot more powerful than we've um, been before and especially in terms of getting into mainstream art movements through our activism as disability activists. As an academic, Catherine, do you see that we are at a more rapid uh, level of progress? That no. You don't see that? No. Not in academia anyway. <laughs> That's a whole other forum, especially as a as a disabled academic, mm. um, when quite often I still get asked if I can tell my personal story to students. Oh, you please don't do that in the questions. If somebody... <laughs> <laughs> so exhibit A, you know, the autistic lecturer, not not um, lecturer who studied disability studies and is here teaching you this topic. It's like, can you... Can you count matchsticks? So there was a guy called Jim Sinclair and um, he's an autistic activist, um, big on the sort of uh, identity first language but also one of his um, little quips was uh, to describe the self-narrating zoo exhibit which is basically when someone is paid to talk about an aspect of their life uh, deeply and intimately 
uh, and then kind of just less hanging out there, a little bit bereft, um, they also probably get a cab charge and a dried up chicken sandwich <laughs> for spilling their guts on mm. stage. Mm. So, um, and as an academic, I, I've still, like in the last few years, been asked by other academics to tell my personal story. That's not why I'm in that space. Actually, if you come to one of my lectures, I freely talk about my identity and things like that, but I'm not... That is interwoven with what I'm teaching and who I am. I'm not there just to be exhibit A. Um, and as far as critical disability studies go, there's very little happening. Um, a lot of it's New South Wales-centric and there's a small network of people, uh, academics working... Like, small... Ac- academic space for critical disability studies, but um, that and the general theory of social movements is something that's very understudied in Australia. It just doesn't have the the backing, the funding. I was talking to Eva Cox mm. last night about the way that these conversations have declined mm. and how we can start emailing each other and reinvigorating some of the conversations around um, social movements and social change and looking at, you know, um, activating our own social capital. Like, Eva's one reading of her Boyer lecture from 1995 on social capital is one of my students' readings. So I'm like, oh, Eva Cox, yeah, get to meet Eva Cox. Um, And I've got a card and I can email her. But the importance, apart from me being... a like an uber fan, um, is that we need to start conversations in terms of, uh, you know, critical conversations in terms of where we're going in terms of social movements uh, and creating social change in Australia because those uh, movements like, say, the NDIS, which is, you know, a big area of change in terms of disability support and provision of support will only result in, in the further commodification of, of disability support and no social change unless we have a real social movement for social change and community development in terms of creating a more accessible society because it's all very well to get a, you know, a brand new wheelchair and... Um, did you just look at that? Yeah, I did. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you, NDIS. Um, <laughs> but, you know, you need somewhere to go and you need a community to roll out into that has no barriers in attitude or, or physical barriers, you know. And um, a lot of older people are still used to people being in institutions. Um, so when individuals or groups of individuals, particularly with intellectual disability, start frequenting community centres, libraries and all of that sort of stuff. I work in a library. We get complaints from people about these people in the library. What are they doing in the library? <laughs> Why are they here? That, that man just touched the fish tank. <laughs> Why is he sitting in the children's area? Who the fuck cares? <laughs> <laughs> he's, um, he's a customer. <laughs> so 
I mean, for every one of those ladies, there's a fantastic bloody staff member that I work with or someone in the community that's going to sort of, you know, their sort of lovely juices will overflow the cranky old lady vibe. Uh, Sorry, it usually is older ladies. Um, But those attitudes really, really still exist. Mm. And even in a little microcosm like a public library, we see it played out all the time. Um, And it's not just based on disability. Often it's based on race and things like that. You know, the library is a third place in society. So we see like a microcosm of things playing out there. And, um, you know, if we don't have those changes for people in terms of attitude, um, then all of these pieces of financial reform, systems reform, will fail. Not to mention like the flashpoint issues about inclusion and exclusion, about whose voice gets marginalised. I'm just going to. I'm going to get to you, um, Samantha. I'm just going to say we're going to get to the time for questions. So if people who do have questions want to start lining up um, now, Samantha. So just just to chip in with that, um, we also have that in the disability sector. So uh, when I went to do my NDIS plan, the planner said to me, "How many times would you like to access the community? You know, and (laughs) community access." And so I'm a scout leader and I told our scouts that, um, you know, we went on a hike into town and one of them pushed me up a hill and I said, oh, you're my informal support whilst accessing the community. And they were sort of, what? And it really, it really is that othering thing where you have that soft bigotry of low expectation where um, we're not expected to have jobs, we're not expected to have relationships, we're not expected to be at the pub. You know, so there's... Or at the library, apparently. So, um, you know, there's sort of those issues in our community as well so that we really need to get around those stereotypes and get people to understand that we don't access the community, we actually live in the community. It's not a tourist destination. And from a perspective of a woman, it's... Yeah. From a perspective of a woman, being a woman, we're also sisters, lovers, mothers. She's got six kids. Um, sorry. She's got a dog. <laughs> she had enough for all of us. Thank you for not applauding too, like somebody did some, at one point when I was on a stage. <laughs> is that because I'm a cripple with six kids or is that... Yes. Because, is it? Yeah, I'm sure. And yeah. we have sex. That's the other thing that... Um, you know, uh, there's still a lot of stuff out there. And mm. in the context of, say, a massive system change like the NDIS, like, where does sex fit in? Where does access to sex fit in? You know, if you physically are not able to have sex but really want to get it on, how do you get supported to have sex with whomever you want to have sex with? And where, do, where, where is feminism in that? Um, I'm going to start taking questions. Uh, Number one. Where is number one? Where are you, number one? Over there. I would love to hear the panel's thoughts on the role of the disability community and, you know, the CRIP activist community in hearing and legitimising the experience of those with invisible disabilities. And, you know, I would note that I know that there are a few invisible disabilities on the panel, including autism. However, also, all of there are visible differences as well. Um, and I guess I'd love to hear 
what role there is in legitimising the experience of those of us with a visible disability for within the disability community. That's and, a corker. And better. So one of those things is um, if you have a visible disability, um, people just look at my wheelchair and that's actually not my primary disability. So I identify as mad as well and I'm also neurodivergent. So, you know, one of the things last night is that um, it's a really embarrassing thing that I don't recognise people's faces. And, um, you know, sometimes recognise people who are dead, which is hilarious, in, a, in shopping centres, or my own children. I have actually pinched a man's ass, thinking it was my husband. And um, so... <laughs> It's one of those things where you don't announce it up front. Um, Susan came up, although I've known her forever, and said, I'm Susan. <laughs> Thank you. And so um, those sort of things, I guess, um, impact on us. Um, there's a movement now around disability pride and invisible disability, and I think the loss of some of that... Can you wait a second? Hi, whoever's speaking into that microphone, we can hear you. <laughs> and I think the loss of some of that stigma around being autistic, except on Reddit, where being autistic is like cancer, you know, it's apparently dreadful. Um, some of that stigma around madness as well is, um, I think, breaking down some of those things. So I think we're starting to get there, but very slowly. I think there's a, been a historical sort of conflict, you might say, between visible and invisible stuff that's got a lot to do with the medicalisation of all disabled people. Like, back in the early days, I had people with invisible disabilities say, oh, I wish I was like you and I looked obviously different because then people would take my impairments more seriously and I'd say, go fuck yourself because actually it was hard growing up like this and, like, you know where to put that. And so there was this kind of historical conflict. And there's also this difference between medicalisation. Like, in my position, having always been over-medicalised, I have this, like, severe medical phobia. However, for people with invisible disabilities who aren't taken seriously by medical, however seriously we may take these people the problem is the medical profession in a lot of ways so there's that sort of conflict about please don't the hell take me to a doctor unless I'm bleeding out or appear to be dead whereas for a lot of invisible people with invisible disabilities they'd give anything to have the sort of over-attention that I have so there's kind of like some built-in conflicts there I like to think we're a bit further down the path of well, you know, I mean, for me personally, the more people in club crypt, the better. But I can see that there's kind of a few historical differences we have to work with before we can perhaps feel like we're all, you know, in this together. I think there's, a, there's historical factors at play as well. Um, there's a hierarchy of disability. Absolutely. Just like there's hierarchy in feminism and everywhere else, you know. So there are certain people on the top, usually physically disabled white men um, or, or, or white men with sensory impairments. And Paralympians, let's not forget the Paralympians. Oh. <laughs> so, Shout out. <laughs> Don't get us started no, on Paralympians. Just in case you can't so, hear it, Kathy's actually hissing. Like, <laughs> yes, I'm growling. And... So there's a... Um, after the Second World War... Um, a lot of returned soldiers had blindness and physical disability. So a lot of the first programs were set up for um, blind people and people with physical disabilities. Um, and so there's a lot of historical um, inequality in terms of who 
got supported first and the people who are at the back of the line are people with developmental disability, so intellectual disability and autism and people with invisible disability are like latecomers to the show and part of that is because of the way the systems were set up to support people and highlight their needs. And but a judgment of context as well. Yeah, and so there's a lot of inequality within our own community as yep. well as um, in the way systems treat us. And another question down at number one. Sorry. Uh, this is a question for all of you, and you may get it a, quite a lot, but as someone who is quite privileged of being able-bodied but is also neurotypical, how can we sort of help break down, break down these barriers and help for, people to be, for the people with disabilities to talk without getting in the way but using our privilege to help? them to sort of almost pass the mic to them? How do you yeah. Samantha? <laughs> it's actually one of those really hard things in terms of recognising privilege first. And um, a lot of the issues are around, you know, that little ramp probably cost a shitload of money. Um, but, you know, the Terps, interpreters, sorry, um, also cost, money, you know, so you've got those privileges around there. But in terms of giving voice, which is what you're talking about, yeah, and supporting to people to have a voice, I guess some of it is about access, you know, that you um, make sure that when you have a program that you also have a program that's in easy English. This is a thing, there's plain English and there's easy English, which is a language for people with intellectual disability. Um, some of it is around access, but some of it is around making sure that you actually have a dedicated space because um, a lot of people just get forgotten. You know, sort of... Even some of our other sisters, I wonder how many First Nations women there are in this room, you know. So I come from uh, Balladon country in WA. There's a big thing with um, Aboriginal women who are also disabled, you know, two and a half times more likely to be disabled. And I think those multiplying levels of disadvantage as well... Um, it's actually about creating a dedicated space and saying, look, we need to consider this and we need to have a lens that we cast over more disadvantaged groups of disabled people. Makes can, sense. Can I so respond to that? Um, and actually what Catherine said earlier made me think about this. There's a theorist in Melbourne, a lawyer, a guy called Ian Parsons, who's also a disabled person. And one of the things he theorised about when he compared the progress of groups like land rights, feminism and queers and disabled people was to say one of the issues with the disability movement is that we have not led the movement. We haven't had the office-bearing positions. So no offence to our lovely person here, but one of the questions that's... Uh, rather, one of the, some of the words that sort of make me arc up are things like help and give voice to and those sort of things. Because if I were you, I mean, I, I don't know what you do, but if I was you and let's say, you know, I ran some community program or whatever, I would be looking to partner up with a disabled person as an equal and work with them as an equal um, rather than... And uh, no offence, please don't take this the wrong way. Good, yeah. Um, so rather than, say, thinking, oh, I'll find a few disabled people and give them access, which I think is a good thing to do. That's a good thing to do in any case. But it's also about power. And it, we're one of those really unfortunate 
um, areas that say, um, you know, if you go to an Aboriginal conference right now, it would be really weird if all the keynotes, all the people running it, da, 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 were not Aboriginal people. But you go to a disability conference, particularly those awful social work ones, and they're not run by us. We're not giving the keynotes. We're not even welcome. So just sort of giving a bit of a comparison, which actually does come from my buddy in Victoria, Ann Parsons, is sort of talk about, you know, who has the power to make decisions... And if you have disabled people in those roles, you've got a far greater uh, potential there to actually bring about social change than keeping up that system of, oh, I better find some good deed. Please don't take this wrong. Um, to bring disabled people in. Do you know what I mean? That's the difference. And that creating space, you know, I'm talking about at power-making levels, you know, so in terms of top tiers, you know, in the same way we talk about management, you know, this kind of thing. Not having a token crip at the table who can be ignored by everybody And else. outnumbered. It can be terrible to be the only disabled person in a room, you know, and, yeah. yeah. With another chicken sandwich and a cab job. Yes. <laughs> at the community centre. Yeah. yeah. Low-cost hors d'oeuvres. <laughs> All right, do we have another question up there? Number up two, up you up will here. be the last question. Oh, I know, this hour has flown by. I could listen to the three You can come and talk to us after... That, that person okay. there. Okay, no, it's me, it's me actually. Um, the aged um, cripple up the back. Um, I was in the public service the year after the marriage bar got lifted. So I was able to get married and still keep my job, which is pretty cool. Um, I'm really, really worried about the role of the federal government, generally. Yeah, we all. But, well, if I can just preface my marks with fuck capitalism... Um, <laughs> I don't think you're going to get any disagreement on this panel, darling. Right. What, what has now happened is that most federal public service jobs are now held by contractors. People hold their jobs for 12 weeks and if they keep their noses clean and don't cause any trouble, there might be an opportunity for them to have that position reinstated at the end of 12 weeks. So if we're looking at intersectionality and the problems about that not being able to maintain permanent employment mm. is a very, very strong one. I used to run a deaf, a deaf network from Department of Veterans Affairs. There's now one deaf person working at Concord Hospital. We've there got you, two minutes, so we need to turn this there used, there used to be 18. We need to fundamentally change the system so that the federal public service becomes actually a government for all of us, not just for the privileged. Yes. Can, that's why I'm not working. Can I be the public servant who answers that? From these three. <laughs> ah, Closing remark as a former state government public servant and a current um, part-time federal public servant who's working for um, young Senator Jordan Steele John. Yes. <laughs> You can, um, from WA. And so, yes, it's about 2.5% of disabled people who are employed. Um, the NDIA are starting to lift the benchmark, I think, and they're doing that by creating those spaces and having a dedicated approach to making sure that disabled people are actually um, included. Oh, not mouthy. Yes, that's right. So, I can't uh, simultaneously sit on a stage like this and work for the NDIA. You, you can't be a, a good... You can't be a bad crip, so, you know, we try not to be. So I think there are some inroads, but, yes, there's a, a long, long way to go to actually start making change in that space. Catherine. 
What am I doing? Around saying goodbye, basically. Oh, let's not talk about the federal government. <laughs> they have a lot of power in our lives, don't they? Yeah. Oh, marriage. I'm getting married now. Hey, hey you. So, um, really, there shouldn't be a, a clap, but yeah, one day there won't be. And. Oh, um, so but it's it's about um yeah marriage is a big institution economically as well and that's something that's always been in the back of my mind when talking about marriage equality uh, and when we're talking about equality per se we need access to like those roles that allow us to participate in the economy so then we're not fucking poor um because if you're poor and you're an activist um you don't have any resources to change things so it's fundamental that people get access to work so that they can participate in the economy but also that they get access to um society so that you know Having a job is and participating in the economy is is not enough. It's about having access to everything that society offers, including the feminist movement. And the library. Kath, um, we're now over time. So in 30 seconds, can you tell everybody how we can destroy capitalism and enfranchise everybody equally? No. <laughs> However... <laughs> no. My big thing is, I think, you know, the cultural space. And I think one of the... Barriers to the cultural space can actually be each other. I mean, I find in sort of, you know, feminism, queer stuff, disabled stuff and so forth, um, there can be a lot of bitching about, you know, the tall poppy thing, the loud people. As someone who's, like, relentlessly loud, does what I like, does I don't give a shit what anyone thinks about me. I'd like to be more of me. And I think a little bit less of that sort of, oh, God, I better not say that because um, someone might dislike me. Like, fuck that stuff. So I think in a marginalised group, you can get that sort of pressure to be uh, to totally PC, totally right all the time, totally supported by everyone. Impossible, forget it, drop it, and, and move on from there. I just want there to be more voices of ours out there in the world. Um, so I encourage everyone to not give a shit what anyone else thinks, but to fight for the right to speak, fight for the right to go for what you want and just do it. Mm. Amazing. These three. Samantha Connor, Catherine Anir, and the amazing Kath Duncan. That was Van Batham, and she was with Kath Duncan, Catherine Anir, and Samantha Connor. The Pursuit for Equality continues next week with more talks from All About Women 2018, so make sure you subscribe. You can get ideas at the house in most good podcast apps. Catch you then. <laughs> <laughs>